We are beginning a new series today. We're actually beginning a new big series and then a smaller series within that series. And there'll be several series within the series as we go through it. And uh, so it's kind of a serial series, if you will. But um, the, the, the larger series is a royal priesthood, a holy people. And I'll explain that momentarily. The series within that is Becoming a Praying Church. And um, we, we just got through with a series, the gospel, are called Gospel Clarity. And, and one of the key things we, we identified in there is that the gospel, if we are actually talking about the real gospel, calls us to something. It, it calls us, and, and we saw that in several different ways. And um, that something that it calls us to could be expressed... Uh, this way, that we are called to be holy as He is holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. Or, maybe expanding on that a bit, we can say it's it's a calling to be a royal priesthood and a holy people. A royal priesthood and a holy people. I know a lot of translations say nation, uh, ethne in the the Greek, or ethnos, actually. And and that's fine, it can mean nation, but it never means nation the way we think of nation. So I don't like using that word. Uh, we think of nation in a very nation-state-oriented sort of way. It, it really referred to uh, people groups that came together as what we might today call countries, if you will. So every manner of people, not just Israel, if you will, uh, every manner of people, the church is called to be a royal priesthood and a holy people. Um, and, of course, we see that in, in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And, and then in 1 Peter, we're told, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation or people, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So that is the larger series. What does it mean for us to be a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation? That's our mission. That's our place in the world. So what does that mean? And we're going to be exploring that under a variety of things. And today we're going to be exploring that beginning under the theme of becoming a praying Church And our text is the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. If not, we'll be turning the slides to the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel anyway, and you'll be able to join us there, and that's fine. Um, join me in reading God's Word, if you will, and I'll be reading from the New International <clears throat> Version. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she will not eventually come and attack me, or better, um, not wear me out. Um, it's, it's an idiom, so it literally says come and attack me, but that's not what it meant. It meant wear me out. Um, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him, day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you that he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, 
Open our hearts and minds to see your calling in the gospel for us. Your calling for us to join in your mission. Lord, that you have a mission and that we have been compelled to join in with it. And help us to see how much we need to call on you in order to survive that mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Consistency in prayer is a perpetual problem for the church and the Christian in general. The pathology of this disease is undoubtedly complex, yet based on what we find in Luke's Gospel and in our text, I offer that a key reason for this weakness is a lack of clarity on our calling. Jesus' mission, that's our calling, the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. A lack of clarity on that calling leads to this weakness in prayer, this inconsistency uh, in prayer. It's, th- th- there is no doubt a, a widespread lack of us setting out to even do the mission. And if we can, aren't setting out to do it, if we don't understand what it is, we won't set out to do it. And even if we understand what it is, if we don't set out to do it, we actually are going to remain inconsistent in prayer. I hope you'll be able to see that as we walk through this today. Put the other way around, when we understand what the gospel calls us to, our gospel calling, Jesus' mission, and we step out in faith to do it, prayer will come far more naturally to us. Why? Because then and only then will we see our complete inability to accomplish God's mission without God's constant help. We don't pray a lot of times because we don't understand why we so desperately need it. And the reason we don't understand that is because we're not doing what he told us to do. At its root, prayerlessness reveals that we have not recognized our need. Sometimes we don't pray because we simply don't know how or what to pray about. Knowing God's mission, our gospel calling, and setting out to do it immediately begins to solve that problem. I'm going to say that again because I want us to get that point. Sometimes we don't know, uh, we don't pray because we simply don't know how or what to pray about. And that's true. I get that. But the more we know God's mission and our gospel calling to join in it, and the more we set out to actually do it, it will immediately begin to solve the problem. won't cure it entirely because it takes time to keep doing it until we get it, but it will solve the problem. We'll begin to know what to pray for because desperation solves the problem. Desperation solves the problem. Now, aside from the Lord's Prayer itself, which we prayed earlier together, uh, I can't think of a more important text on prayer in the Bible than the parable before us. It has nearly inexhaustible stores of food for us to feed on. Both of those texts, the Lord's Prayer and this parable, drive home a key point. Prayer is a cry for the kingdom. Prayer is a cry for the kingdom. Prayer expresses the deepest yearning of our hearts and even the deepest yearning of creation itself. And that that is that God's reign would come. Prayer, in its most basic form, is petition. Petition grows out of need. So prayerlessness reveals that we have not recognized our need. So we're going to explore our text under three headings. Prayer and the mission, prayer and the kingdom, prayer and finishing the mission. 
Prayer in the mission, prayer in the kingdom, prayer in finishing the mission. Let's begin under that first heading, prayer and the mission. Verse 1, let's just review that again. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Or, quite literally, not lose heart. Not lose heart. If one were to outline Luke's gospel, there would be a large middle section covering chapters 4 on the beginning to chapters 21 on the end that we could title in this outline of Jesus' ministry, The Ministry of Jesus. So this outline, rather, of the Gospel of Luke, you have chapters 4 through 21, the ministry of Jesus. And often when we tell what is the gospel, oftentimes when you hear people talk about what is the gospel, they leave that entire section out. They talk about his coming, they talk about his death, suffering, resurrection. But nobody talks about the the massive middle, which in this case is chapters 4 through 21, the ministry of Jesus. But we're going to talk about that, you see, because it's relevant to our text. Jesus' ministry began with his standing up in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth. And reading from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me, he has Christed me, he has uh, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is, by the way, the, the year of redemption, restoration, and return. The year when, when people who had gone in, into debt and had not been able to pay their bills, they lost their land. And now, whether it's them or a generation later, this land is restored to their family and the debt is forgiven. And you say, well, that doesn't seem just. Well, it is in God's eyes because that is God's justice. You know, keep in mind, God's justice and our justice are two very different things. God's justice of necessity includes mercy. It's not at the polar opposite end of mercy. If we are going to live in God's justice, we must live in mercy. Because for us to not be merciful, given the amount of mercy we've received, would be the biggest possible expression of injustice you could imagine. But don't get me started. That's another sermon. We could preach it, and I have. But anyway, I'm going there right now. I'm just saying, okay? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it's often called the year of Jubilee. That year when people are set free. You talk about good news for the poor. The year of Jubilee was massive good news for the poor. Massive good news for the poor. Now, those verses from Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, quoted here in Luke 4, 18 through 19 on the lips of Jesus, they are the mission statement of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel. Everything he does flows out of this. Everything he does flows out of this. So, we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Or, I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. It's in uh, Luke 6, 20 through 49. And there, like in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus teaches us how, uh, how to live as if the, the year of Jubilee has already begun in Him. If you, if you read the Sermon on the Mount with the understanding that He's telling us what it now looks like to live in the year of Jubilee that He proclaimed that has begun in Him, it makes a ton of sense. Because, he says, for instance, blessed are the poor. But, of course, he also adds, which we don't see in Matthew's gospel, and woe to the rich. You see, the gospel is good news to the poor, but there is a reality 
that we must face. Whatever is good news for the poor happens to be bad news for the rich. Think about it, the year of Jubilee. It's great news for the poor. Their debts are forgiven. It's really bad news to the ones who loaned them money. You, you, you follow the logic? <laughs> I mean, you can't have one without the other. Somebody's got to pay that. Okay? It's God's equity. And many of us don't think it's fair, of course, because we think we are responsible for everything we have, and God thinks otherwise. He thinks he is responsible for everything we have and that he gives to us in abundance so that we might share it with those in need. And then he has this sort of reset option for those, because so many of us won't, <laughs> that he set it up with the reset option to fix it. <clears throat> so that's woe to the rich. By the way, since the rich were always the ones in control, Israel never practiced the year of Jubilee. <laughs> they never did it. <laughs> they just didn't do it. Because they were in charge. Now, this is followed by instructions on how to live. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So living in Jesus' constant state of of jubilee to liberate people from what binds them, it calls us to live lives which are radically different than the self-centered dog-eat-dog lives of the world around us. It would cause people to ask the question, what is the reason for the hope that you have? In other words, why do you live like that? What are you thinking? Might be a simpler way to put it. (laughs) Jesus' earthly ministry demonstrates just how much Jesus intends for his kingdom to transform our lives. He came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he begins to show us what that looks like. Now, in the middle of that ministry of Jesus, chapters 4 through 21, and there's this aha moment. You're probably familiar with it. See it in Matthew's gospel, Mark, and and in Luke. When Peter recognizes who Jesus is, he says, you are God's good promised king. You're the Christ. But remember, in our previous series, we talked about why we, when we read Christ, we should thank God's good promised king. Replay that series to get the explanation. But when we read Christ, you are the Christ, you are God's good promised king. You're the Messiah, Luke 9, 20. And from that point on, Jesus talks about the cost of following him. It will be a matter of following, uh, 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 in following him that we will, he will be rejected, his suffering Uh, dying on the cross and on the third day resurrection. Um, And at that point, ministry for the disciples becomes difficult. And this is the key to understanding our text today. When Jesus turns his focus toward the cross, ministry for the disciples becomes difficult. They immediately experience, in chapter 9, starting in verse 37, failure. When a man brings his severely epileptic son to the disciples for healing, and their failure only leads to an argument. They're arguing with each other as to what's going on, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus pins the problem on prayerlessness. The disciples failed to bring the boy to Jesus. Now that, again, is a whole other sermon that I don't have time to get into today, but that section begins with pointing to our need for prayer and And as we get toward the end, this need for prayer is highlighted 
again. Ministry in the path of the cross will require bringing people to Jesus repeatedly and often. Their failure reveals their utter need to depend on Jesus in prayer. Chapter 17, so one chapter before our text. I'm I'm, I'm getting there. All of this is essential to understanding our text, so work with me here just a moment. Chapter 17 begins with Jesus emphasizing the requirement of addressing offenses within the community. And the total requirement to extend forgiveness to a brother or a sister who claims to repent, no matter how insincere it seems. It says, if a brother sins against you, or a sister sins against you seven times in one day, and seven times in one day says, I repent, forgive them. Now, I don't know about you, round about time number two or three, and only three if I'm on a good day, and two if I'm on a normal day, one if I'm on a bad day, <laughs> Do I think they're insincere? Seven times. Forgive them. And so their response is understandable. They immediately say, Lord, increase our faith. But Jesus' answer tells them that they don't need more faith. The the, the tiniest speck of faith, a mustard seed. Is enough to move mountains, remove trees, do whatever you need to do. There's more than enough faith that you've got. That is not the issue. Well, what is it? Oh, obedience. You need to remember that you're servants. They need to just start doing what he said. They need to stop thinking they're a privileged people and begin, to think, uh, begin taking the role of lowly servants. The chapter ends with Jesus' response to the Pharisees who had asked about when the kingdom of God would appear and he immediately corrects their question by telling them it's not an issue of when but of how. It it will come among you. In other words, those who hear my teachings and, and do them, putting them into practice, they will experience the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. And that flows directly into parables about how to be ready for his return, which comes up again at the end of our parable, so it's relevant again to our section. How, how, the, how they need to be living between the time of Jesus' first coming and his return to rule and fullness, which can best be summarized in verse 33. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. That's kind of our descriptor for how we are to live between the time of his first coming and his second coming. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. Now, If I were to summarize chapter 17, then, Jesus is telling disciples that the life of following him will be costly and often discouraging. You may want to give up on the mission because it will be slow in coming. At times it will involve failure and will continually call you to do what you cannot do. At least not alone. That is the context that leads to the parable, which is in our text, It is that context that we must understand because our parable starts out, or our text starts out connecting it to the previous chapter in English. Then Jesus told them a parable. It's connected. See that? Could read. And, connecting it, it's got a connecting word there to the previous. Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. In other words, entering into our mission is essential for seeing the necessity of prayer. Entering into our mission, everything Jesus has been talking about 
and the difficulties of that mission is essential for seeing the necessity of prayer. You've heard the song, if you, if you want to walk on the water, you've got to get out of the boat. I'm going to change the, the words just a little. If you want to have a prayer life, you've got to get out of the boat. You remember the story of Peter. They're out in the boat in the middle of the night. Jesus wasn't with them. The storm starts raging and this, that, and the other. Next thing you know, Jesus is walking on the water. and oh, Peter thinks it's quite amazing. Well, look what Jesus is doing. So what does he say? Well, Lord... If, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. When he, The Lord says, okay, come. I mean, it was him, so what else was he to do? Come. But then when, when Peter sees the wind, he was afraid and begin to, beginning to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. <laughs> you see, like, like Peter, we see Jesus in the Gospels feeding the poor, setting the oppressed free, seeing uh, sinners reconciled, healing the sick. And we too say, Lord, if this is you, if, if this is what you are like, what your kingdom is like, bid us come. We want to do the work of your kingdom. And he does. He says, well, come. And very soon we find ourselves in the midst of the storm and realize how crazy it was that we asked to do this and how things aren't going quite as we expected. And suddenly we need to cry out, Lord, save us. And alas, we too are praying. And he does save us. You see how Peter's prayer, Lord, save us, save me, Lord. It grew right out of his stepping out in obedience to Jesus' word to come. Entering into our mission is essential for seeing the necessity of prayer. Just as Peter had to get out of the boat to be like Jesus before his prayer life came alive, so too we have to get out of the boat and into God's mission before ours will come alive. And that is when the temptation to lose heart confronts us right in the face. So we must pray. Now, interestingly, in my experience anyway, that's also when we're tempted not to pray. So, there's that, right? Prayer is connected to our entering God's mission, and it is a cry for the kingdom. And that leads us to our second point, which is uh, prayer and the kingdom. Let's read verses uh, 2 through 5 again. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because the widow keeps this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me or wear me out. Now, I, I've said that this parable and the Lord's Prayer both drive home a key point, that prayer is a cry for the kingdom. Now, why do I say that for, about this parable? It's easy to see that. Of course, in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. It's right there in our face. It may not be so in our face here in this parable. So why do I say this parable teaches us that prayer is a cry for the kingdom? If, I, if, uh, if you don't mind, maybe Mike, if you don't mind getting me a water, um, I'm going to need it at some point here. Well, why is it that prayer is a cry for a kingdom? Or why is it that this parable teaches that? Well, this parable is about a widow crying out for justice. 
Five times in this passage, three are in the verses 6 or 8 that we're going to read again momentarily, but two in what we just read, three more coming. Five times, either justice or, in the case of one of these times, the unjust judge, so he's lacking justice, the negation of justice. This, so justice is mentioned five times in one form or another. In other words, the prayer in view is a cry for justice to replace injustice. The prayer in view is a cry for justice to replace injustice. Thank you. Appreciate it. The justice that the widow was seeking was for the judge to set things right, if you will. To make them as they ought to be. That, that's what the kind of justice she's looking for is that things should be as God made them to be. And they clearly aren't as God made them to be. The whole world is not as God made it to be. And we cry for it to be set right. That's a cry for the kingdom. Maybe one of the most elementary things we need to learn about the coming of the kingdom of God from the Old Testament if, if, we, if we look at the Old Testament, we see everything it says about this coming Messiah and His kingdom. I think one of the most fundamental things we see is that humans long for that kingdom because they live in a world of injustice and violence. And only God and His kingdom can bring true justice and peace. Only God and His kingdom can bring true justice and peace. So this widow appears in the world without power and protection, because all widows in that day and age had no power and protection. We could have substituted her with an orphan, but the story wouldn't make quite as much sense, So, but it's the same thing. Could be a, a, a stranger, an alien in a land, uh, an, a migrant, an immigrant, if you will, where in most times there's no power for them in the culture they're living in. But here this widow appears in this story without power, without protection, and she's crying out for the kingdom to come. She's a picture of God's people, whether that be Israel or the church, who appear powerless in the world and cry for the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, justice and peace come. You see it all through Isaiah, and we looked at that in our last uh, series more in depth, but you see it throughout Isaiah as a, an example, all the prophets in truth. Those two, justice and peace, might be the most common descriptors of the kingdom in the Old Testament. Okay. If one thinks that the gospel has nothing to do with justice, think again. It has everything to do with it. It is the announcement of the reign of God in Jesus, and that is all about bringing justice and peace into the world. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, as noted earlier, speak to these issues. Jesus feeding the poor, healing the sick, setting the oppressed free. Jesus preaching good news to the poor, deliverance to the captives. And just because the kingdom includes cosmic justice, which it does, through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the transformation of our souls, it, it, because it, the only way to truly deal with justice is to deal with it cosmically, such that, because the reality is, Everybody has both been treated unjustly and experienced injustice and, oh, by the way, have been the victimizer, victimizers of others who have experienced the injustice from them. So we all have to receive forgiveness. 
We've all participated in the injustice. And yet we also all experience it. And so we need this cosmic justice to transform. If it's ever going to be true justice, there's only one way it can happen, and that's through the gospel. I celebrate every kind of justice. Don't get me wrong. if, If there's anything that makes the world more just, I want to celebrate that. But I don't want to celebrate that as if it's an end in itself, because there's only one way to get to full and true justice. Prayer is rebellion against the fallenness of the world. In November 1979, so I was a senior in high school, had no idea this happened. But in Christianity Today, an article on prayer by David Wells was published titled, Prayer, Rebelling Against the Status Quo. And that may stand as one of the best articles on prayer ever written to date. I mean, it just might. I don't know. I think it is, but I'm not all-knowing to be sure. But it begins with a rewriting of this parable into modern life, which was both creative and brilliant. And then in it, he gives one of the best definitions of prayer, which is this. He says, What then is the nature of petitionary prayer? It is, in essence, rebellion. Rebellion against the world and its fallenness. The absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. The absolute and undying uh, refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is, in in this, its negative aspect, the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. In other words, prayer is a cry for the kingdom. For the restoration of life as God intended it to be. Anything required to restore life to the way that God intended it to be is a legitimate request in prayer. Anything. I'm going to say it again. Anything required to restore life to the way God intended it to be is a legitimate request in prayer. So what should I be praying for? Anything that is required to restore life to the way that God intended it to be. Legitimate grounds for prayer and calling on God. What, what fallenness in the world What fallenness in our city do we need to rebel against in prayer as a church? What does this neighborhood around our church need us to rebel against in prayer? What do you need to rebel against in prayer, in your household, in your neighborhood? And how can we as a body help you do that? Now, I'm going to also modernize the parable, but not in the way that he did in his article. Because his purpose was one thing, but my purpose is another. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. There was also a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused, and the elders at this widow's church spoke to her regularly about her needing to accept her situation to stop pestering the judge and to realize that God was sovereign and was answering her prayer, so to speak, but the answer was no. 
Eventually, she stopped pestering the unjust judge and accepted her abnormal, unjust existence as God's will for her. She was given opportunity to share her testimony at the church. The judge changed all right. He became even more hardened in his injustice. Sadly, that may come far closer to describing the modernistic view of prayer in the church and how it ought to go than the parable itself did. The satirical rewriting that I just read makes two points. The goal of our prayer is not to accept the world and its fallenness, but to rebel against it. It is a cry for the kingdom, not a cry to accept the brokenness of the world. Second, this parable isn't merely for widows, but for all of us to realize that we are to be crying out in intercession to God with the widows, the orphans, and the strangers in the world. The church elders, in my version of the parable, should have joined the widow in her pleas to the unjust judge, not insulated the judge so that he could remain comfortable in his injustice. In that article, David Wells goes on to say, and this is just one of my favorite quotes again on prayer, nothing destroys petitionary prayer, and with it a Christian view of God, as quickly as resignation. Listen, we don't need to be a people who are resigned to the brokenness of the world. We need to be rebelling against it, rebelling against the status quo. Can I get an amen? Amen. Not with swords, not with violence, not with anger, but with prayer and gospel action. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and that leads to our third and final point, prayer and finishing the mission. And as well, finishing this sermon, of course. <clears throat> if you would read with me verses 6 through 8. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The, The comparison in the parable is not between the unjust judge and God. That would be a contradistinction. God is not at all like the unjust judge. The comparison in the parable is between the widow and God's people seeking justice in an unjust world. Let me say it again. The comparison in the parable is between the widow and God's people seeking justice in an unjust world. The widow corresponds to disciples needing to endure the difficulties of the mission or seeming failure in the mission, and continually going to God so they might not give up on their calling, which is His mission. Will He find faith on the earth? Now, I don't know about you, but I've always looked at that last line. I mean, it's just the closing line. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? I've always, that's, that's always bewildered me. 
It's, it's like, okay, you get, you get it, right? I mean, it's like you're reading along, you've talked about prayer, you've talked about injustice, there's judge, and, and you might expect, when, when the Son of Man comes, will he find justice in the earth, right? I mean, you know, will, will he find judges who have been transformed? But will he find faith? What, what does that have to do with anything else in this parable? But again, I think if we interpret the parable as if Luke 18, 1 through 8 dropped out of heaven and was given to the church as Luke 18, 1 through 8, then it makes no sense because the parable is, in some sense, all about prayer as an end in itself. I mean, he told a parable. If, if, here's what that parable would read like if, if it just dropped out of heaven without the rest of Luke's gospel. It would read something like, Jesus then told them a parable uh, about how they need to pray and not give up praying. Because praying is so important, it makes you such a good Christian. And, and so, you need to learn how to pray to be a good Christian. And, and so, then there's this widow, and you get the whole story of that, and then you get to the end. And, 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 and when the Son of Man comes, is he going to find enough faith in his people that they're praying? Because that's all you can do with it at that point. Because if we separate it from its context, it's no longer about the mission and the difficulty of the mission. It's no longer about the fact that when you get out of the boat and come with Jesus to do what he's doing, you suddenly find yourself in a desperate need to cry out for help because you're about to give up and think that you're crazy for even starting this thing. But if I keep it in context, suddenly that line at the end begins to make a lot of sense. Will he find his people trusting that he will grant justice in answer to their petitions and intercessions, their prayers, and thereby gladly get involved in the mission? Will he find people crying out to God to meet needs and thereby willing to sacrificially live in hope of the answer? Will he find us willing to bring justice into a fallen world by living in a perpetual year of restoration and return, a year of jubilee, by continually walking in the calling of the Sermon on the Plain? Will he find us continually bringing the boy to Jesus and crying out for help from Christ? Will he find faith on the earth? Jesus' mission began as a justice mission. There's no question about it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim or to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set or the oppressed free, or literally to send out the oppressed free. They've been captive. They're being sent out free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, it was good news to the poor. Well, what's good news to the poor? Justice. It includes the command given to all believers, give to the one who asks of you. That's good news. Calvin, as in John Calvin. And by the way, what I'm about to read, when, when somebody says I'm a Calvinist, they usually don't include this. And most of them have no idea that he ever said this or talked like this. They might think a lot of things that he never did say were important to him, but he certainly thought this was vitally important and got in regular trouble with uh, the, the leaders in his church over it. But Calvin held that <clears throat> the fact that the church w- has a diaconal ministry which cares for the poor <clears throat> was no mere institutional form, but an expression of a greater reality that reconciliation was taking place in the church between rich and poor, the haves and the have-nots. He, he held that the church 
was to be so changed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God that they no longer considered giving away their property and goods to the poor as foolishness. That they would stop believing the lie that giving to the needy was a waste of resources. Well, there's some Calvinism you should embrace. He also believed that the church should give half its income to the poor. That's radical. We're not anywhere close to that. But I like it. And we've got to figure out how to get there. Freedom for prisoners was justice. Now see, we tend to think that, free, that, 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 that justice is lock them up, lock them up, lock them up, throw away the key, lock them up. Three, three strikes and you're out. You're, you're done for. So how in the world is setting prisoners free justice? I mean, I know we read those verses religiously, so we don't even think about questions like that. We just let them go right past us. They're right there in front of us. But, but why would that be a good thing for him to set prisoners free? I, I dare say that most of you wouldn't be thrilled if you got, got up tomorrow morning and discovered that all the judges in the country had just released all the prisoners. So, let's be honest here. We have to ask some questions here of that, Right? Well, there are two things that must be kept in mind. First, these were most likely, at least in large part, political prisoners that were in view. In other words, people that were in prison because they were speaking about the injustice of Rome. And so they're in prison. The cruelties of Rome, so they're in prison. People that were saying, oh, by the way, this Pax Romana, this piece of Rome is a fraud. It's not true. So they're in prison. So he's setting the political prisoners free. But secondly, even if these prisoners had stolen food to survive, it is still justice. Because as Aquinas put it, if a person's need is so urgent and danger imminent, and if there is no other means to meet that need, it it must be met by whatever means is at hand, even if it is another's property. How could he say that? I'm going to read it again. He, he says that if a person's need is so urgent and the danger is so imminent, and if there's no other means to meet that need, then it must be met by whatever means is at hand, even if it is another's property. In other words, even if it means taking what belongs to someone else in order to live. Now, we might ask, how can he say that? And by the way, Calvin agreed with him when he was asked about He said, you want to know more about what I think about how we should deal with the poor? Read Aquinas. I have nothing to correct there. <laughs> so, you're getting it both places. You see, he could say that because the urgency of the need made it that person's property because life is a higher value than property rights. Life is a higher value than property rights. By the way, life is a higher value than the pursuit of happiness. We believe in what as a nation? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the order is important. Right? When I, when I think I can pursue my own happiness at the expense of another's life, then I've gotten it wrong. We pray, give us today our daily bread. We don't pray, 
Give me today my daily bread and a bunch of excess with it. We pray, Lord, give us today. So when I'm praying for daily bread, I'm praying for yours as much as I am mine. Our daily bread, which means that if I have more than enough, that means it's been given to me to give to someone else who has it, and to not give it to them would be, in God's eyes, theft. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor is to proclaim the debtors free, those who had lost home and property and debt, and to have it restored. I mean, this, this is justice par excellence. Jesus' ministry describes a justice that no earthly form of justice has ever even tried to attain. In God's earthly kingdom, Israel... They set it up as the way things were supposed to be. And everybody there was given a section of land that could never be permanently taken away from them. It was never followed, as we noted earlier, but, but it was the, how God intended it. The cycle of poverty was to be perpetually broken. No matter how intent some people were at destroying their lives, it wouldn't carry on to the generations to follow, and everybody gets a reset to start over. Now, I, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that amen. Yeah, you know, you can get a lot of amens if you start talking about living radically for Jesus. You, you can get a lot of amens if you talk about, you know, hey, live radically for Jesus and go get on the mission field and, 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 and give up and do that. And I'm fine with that. I think that's great. Maybe, uh, maybe what some people have in mind is some envisioning some sort of belligerent, won't-stand-down person who's radical for Jesus. I don't know. I've met those. But if you start talking about living radically for Jesus, like I'm talking about living radically for Jesus, like doing the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, living as if it's a perpetual year of Jubilee, if you start living that way and start talking about living that way, and believe me, I'm doing a lot more talking about it than I am living it. I have to tell you straight up front. I'm trying to figure out how to live it just like anyone else. But I figured at least this much, if I don't start talking about it, we won't start thinking about it. And if we don't start thinking about it, we won't figure out how to do it. So we've got to begin somewhere. But I've discovered in my experience anyway, and it's very limited, of course, to my experience. You talk about it this way, you're going to get a lot of heckling, a lot of harassment, and you're going to get harried along with some amens from a handful of dared to begin living this way, or at least thinking that we ought to. There is a Gideon's army, and it's small, and they'll grab onto it. And maybe that's who's left here, and I'm grateful for you. <laughs> but let's be Gideon's army, and let's do things God's way, and let's figure out how to work in his mission. And we will get, if we dare do it, we will get to the place where we are going to have to cling to prayer or lose heart altogether and quit. Those will be our options. Because it won't be easy. What faith is Jesus looking for when he comes again? He's looking for people that are turning to God in their utter need to help them walk in the mission. 
He's looking for people who are leaving the prayer room empowered to walk by faith in the ways of the kingdom, the ways of justice and peace. We see it in the very next chapter of Luke's gospel with Zacchaeus demonstrating the kind of faith that he's looking for. Zacchaeus sees Jesus, Jesus calls him down, and he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and, I have cheat- and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. What does Jesus say? Well, Zacchaeus, don't get too extreme. We need to be wise. No. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. So he's walking in the faith of Abraham, so he's a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The parable then that follows that account of Zacchaeus, the parable of the ten minas, is all about those who, have, who, who either have faith and radically invest all the grace they've been given into others or stingily hold on to it. You see, it tells us the kind of faith he is looking for. No, and I'm not going to preach that parable there, uh, you know, today, uh, no time. What kind of faith is Jesus looking for when he returns? Not the kind of faith that prays as if prayer were an end in itself any more than it would be to fast as if fasting were an end in itself. Rather, he's looking for the kind of faith that might walk in Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58 we read, Is, is not this the kind of fast I have chosen to loose Uh, the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Could we not adapt that to prayer like this? I'm just saying I think we could, that it, it keeps with the spirit of both Isaiah and Luke. That we might say, is not this the kind of praying I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is, not, is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? You see, that we would seek these things in prayer is a cry for the kingdom unless we're merely giving lip service to it. But if our hearts are in it, then we intend to get off our knees from prayer and go into the world living in kingdom ways. Well, when the Son of Man comes, will he find loyal obedience? Will he find the obedience of faith that the gospel calls forth? And I'll just close on this little visual. We, we want to create a visual reminder of these truths and so we're working on some signs um, or banners or something, lettering. We don't know what it's going to be yet. We're figuring that out. But that will hang above our door when, when you enter and, and above the doors there when you exit. And, and <clears throat> on the way in, it will read, Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. See, that is our prayer. We gather to call on the Lord. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But when you exit, it will read, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we intend for that prayer to be answered. And if our prayer is formative, and I believe it ought to be and is, it will increasingly change how we live. Amen?
See, without prayer, we'll never finish the mission, but we will lose heart along the way. But if we will continually pray, our hearts will be strengthened to finish the mission. And if we're going to fulfill our role in God's mission as a royal priesthood and a holy people, representatives of the king, a royal priesthood and set-apart people, we must pray in order that we do not lose heart and quit the mission. I hope today you've seen that this parable is not about prayer so that we can be better Christians or prayer as an end in itself. I, I hope you can see that the parable is about prayer as necessary so that we don't lose heart while seeking to do the mission. Prayer that is essential because the mission is essential. Because it is God's mission. And because prayer, prayer that is essential because accomplishing the mission is possibly the most difficult thing in human history. Without prayer, we will fail. Not because prayer will do it all, but because without prayer, we will quit and could never do the mission. How is Jesus calling you into the mission? What, what is it about Christ and his ministry and his ways that, that causes you to say, Lord, if this is you, if this is how you are, bid me come with you. What is it when you do obey and to his call and come that will require stepping out of the boat? And for those that have gotten out of the boat and into the fray, what tempts you to give up, to lose heart? We must always pray and not lose heart. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to become a praying church. Not a praying church because, oh, if we were just a praying church, we'd be a better church. But a praying church because we have stepped out of the boat and gotten into the fray of your mission. And we desperately need you to save us from the disaster it seems we might get ourselves into. And truly to transform it so that it is indeed not a disaster, but that it leads to the resurrection and transformation of life. Lord, help us to be a people of faith that are willing to get involved in your mission and give our lives to it, no matter what the cost. For you are the God who raises the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.